listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. I believe is how God changes our lives and impacts our stories, it really gives us an incredible opportunity to take what God has done in us and really begin to uh, use that to change and to impact other people's uh, lives as well. So this video is just kind of, again, a great reminder of the potential that every one of us in this room really has of being a change agent, somebody that really can be used of God to really transform and to impact the lives of other people simply because of what God has done uh, in us. And so I think one of the essential ingredients really in being a change agent in the lives of other people really is faith. And we've really been kind of focusing on that really these last few months. And over and over, I've kind of talked to you again about, you know, for faith to be biblical, for faith to be pleasing to God, it must be active, okay? It's got to be vibrant. There has to be substance to it. It can't just be faith in faith. There has to be substance to that faith. There has to be movement. Uh, There has to be kind of a forward action. I mean, there's a response. I mean, there there are outcomes. There are things that are happening as as a result of that faith that is being expressed. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at men and women who have been living biblical faith, faith that pleases God and We've really been uh, just talking about how that has been responsive to the promptings of God. As we've looked at the lives of men and women, I mean, we're looking at, at things that God has called them uh, to do. And James 2 kind of, again, talks about that role of faith. And in verse 17, it says, and so also faith by itself. You know, faith just kind of isolated. Faith that's kind of just alone or dormant. Faith that's kind of just, you know, not really reacting to anything. He says, if it does not have works, if it's not working, if it's not accomplishing something, if it's not moving you forward, he says that kind of faith alone is dead. So again, we've been really talking. Faith cannot be passive. It cannot be dormant, unresponsive. Faith cannot be doing nothing, okay? Otherwise, the scripture says that kind of faith is dead. It's of no use to you, to anyone else, and certainly not to God. As I've said throughout this entire series, we've been talking on this for months, and I, I could talk on this for years because there are so many men and women, there are so many examples of faith uh, in the scriptures that we can learn from. And you know what? We can learn just as much from people who chose not to walk in faith. Because again, just as there is fruit, there's results um, when we're walking in faith. There's results, there's fruit, there's outcomes when people choose not to walk in faith. And we can learn from that just as easily. And so we've been really kind of talking about, again, that one common thread. I mean, the one thing I have pointed you back to over and over throughout this series as we've looked at the individuals there in Hebrews 11, every one of them, they were responding positively in affirmation of something, a word, a command, a promise that they had received from God. So again, for faith to be biblical, it has to be responding positively in affirmation to something that uh, you have heard from God. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists. Now that right there, that is a response that we're making to the self-revelation of God. That's why it's, it's faith. It's responding to something. It's responding that, yes, God, I believe you exist. And then it goes on and says, and that he rewards those who sincerely or another translations may say earnestly seek him. Again, that is also a response. That's a promise from God. I am a rewarder. 
If you're searching, seeking after me, I'm going to bless that. I'm going to reward that. That is a promise from God. And when we move in accordance, in agreement with that, that is a faith response. So for faith to be active and to be pleasing to God, we must be responding to something that God is telling us. At this point in the series on Hebrews 11, we've really been kind of looking at the time frame of the judges. And that time frame of the judges began when Joshua died. Remember, Joshua took over for Moses. Uh, He's the one that led them into the promised land. You remember, he is the one that uh, helped the nation of Israel to face that first uh, challenge, the uh, city of Jericho and the walls that surrounded that. We talked about that. And, And so when Joshua died, that began the time period of the judges. And that went on until Saul ascended to being the first king over Israel. Now, in that time period of the judges, there were 15 judges. Last week, uh, we looked at, uh, for a couple of weeks, we looked at Gideon, and this week, I kind of want to look at another famous judge um, who had pretty much a really very different outcome to his life than Gideon, and that is Samson. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith, and I kind of talked about that, that you know, we're kind of becoming more and more of a biblically illiterate culture. Uh, there used to be a time where we would maybe kind of, you know, maybe Marilyn would remember this, you, know, you, you knew the stories of all of the Bible heroes. I mean, you, you heard about them all the time. And then we kind of kind of became a culture where we were kind of vaguely familiar with those stories uh, to where we've kind of become a culture now. If you talk to some people about just Noah's Ark, they have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, we've become such a biblically illiterate culture that, you know, people don't even know the names of these people anymore, much less the stories behind these great names. And so that's why I'm taking the time to recount, not just talk about these people, but let's get into the story behind the names of these people. And so he says, it would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, and again, this is substance. I mean, I mean, this is not passive. This is, this is not just little, you know, things that faith is doing. These are big, powerful movements of faith that people have engaged in here. It says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. I mean, do you know there are kingdoms out there in our culture today that need to be overthrown? They said they're ruled with justice. My goodness, did you see what Obama did and, and the proclamation he made over the public schools this? I mean, we gotta get back to ruling with, with just common sense would be a move in the right direction. And we're talking about people that ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lion, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. I mean, this is not little stuff. <coughs> Their weakness was turned to strength. I love that phrase. And maybe you're here this morning, and man, maybe you're in a place of weakness this morning, and that just is your heart cry to God. God, I need you to take this weakness and turn it to strength. God, I need you to take this this despair, and God, just turn it into hope. God, I need you to take this defeat in my life this morning. I just need you to turn it to victory. So they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. So Samson's story kind of begins in Judges 13. And it is like this broken record we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Like many of the other uh, judges that kind, of, that kind of came, verse 1 says, again. I mean, again and again, over and over, this story, this cycle just repeats itself. So Judges 13 verse 1 says, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. And we've been talking about just the cyclical pattern, this just over and over and over again pattern throughout the book of Judges. And really, you could kind of almost say kind of throughout the the history of Israel. Uh, The Israelites, they would kind of sin, they would rebel, they would begin to disobey God. 
God, they would kind of just incrementally kind of just begin to fall back into sin and disobedience and idol worship and all of these things that were just constantly coming upon the nation of Israel. And then God would kind of reach a point where he would kind of just simply say, okay, the only way to get these people back on track is I'm going to deliver you into the hands of your enemies. And I'm going to allow your enemies to kind of discipline you, to punish you, to oppress you, so that you'll get to a place where you'll kind of just begin to realize the error of your ways. You're going to begin to cry out to me for deliverance. I'll raise up a deliverer who will bring you out of that uh, oppression. And so this cycle, you just see it so clearly in the book of Judges. So now in Judges 13, the nation of Israel, they've kind of, you know, just gone away from the Lord again, and they've been given into the hands of the Philistines to be oppressed. So Samson is really born into these circumstances, and his mother and father have, uh, up to this point, been childless. And so as Judges 13 opens, the angel of the Lord uh, visits, and it's kind of interesting, Jason and I were talking about that this week, if you uh, get into that. At one point, the, the parents of Samson kind of asked the angel, do you have a name? And the angel says, yeah, but it's too wonderful for you. Now, biblical scholars really believe that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, which would make sense because, you know, Isaiah said, and his name shall be called Wonderful. And so the angel of the Lord says, yeah, I I have a name, but it's just too wonderful um, for you to hear. And so it is kind of an interesting uh, analogy there. So this angel of the Lord kind of visits these soon-to-be parents of Samson, and he promises that this barren wife, you're going to one day, you're going to conceive a child, you're going to give birth, and you are to call him Samson. Now remember, I think it was last week or maybe the week before we kind of talked about nicknames Um, You know how God, I think, you know, kind of has nicknames. Well, the name Samson in the Hebrew, it means little sunshine. It is what Samson's name meant, little sunshine. And I am just sure that one of the nicknames they had for him was Sonny. Um, And so I think that that is true. So uh, they said you're to name him little sunshine Samson. And so in verse 5, the angel of the Lord gives this really, really clear directive uh, to Samson's mother. And he says to her, you will become pregnant, you're going to give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin, and that, that is so key, he will begin to rescue um, Israel from the Philistines. So before Samson is even born, his parents kind of agree to take and to make this vow on pledge on behalf of their son Samson, we are committed to raising him as a Nazareth. Now, the Nazarite vow really kind of consisted primarily of three things. The first one, a Nazarite was never to drink alcohol. They were not permitted to eat even grapes off the vine or even raisins for that matter. Second, they must uh, never touch anything dead, whether that be a human or an animal. And third, as that scripture indicated there, they must never cut their hair. Now, the one thing that kind of sets Samson apart from all of the others that we've been looking at in Hebrews 11, and I've kind of gone back and pointed out, here's this person, here's what they've heard from God, they've gotten this direct word, promise, command from God. The one thing that is kind of distinct about Samson is there's really no place in Scripture where, where Samson um, receives any kind of a promise, a word, or a command from God. As you read through the story of, of Samson, you know, Judges 13 through 16, there's no recorded instance in there where Samson hears directly from God as to what his role is as this deliverer of of Israel. Uh, Rather, God revealed it to his parents. That is interesting to me. So Samson, by by all appearances, he simply kind of just chooses to come into agreement with the Nazarite vow that really was taken and established by his parents. 
parents. Now, I say this because I think this may be part of the reason um, Samson doesn't really seem to take the Nazarite vow um, very seriously, or he kind of seems to kind of come to a point in his life where he really kind of begins to question, he kind of begins to doubt, and you kind of just begin to see kind of just this incremental stepping uh, away from kind of coming more and more out of that Nazarite uh, vow. First of all, in Judges 14, there's a story there where Samson is attacked by a lion. And it says in the scripture that the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that's kind of one of the differences between the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. What you'll find in Samson's story is oftentimes the scripture would say that whenever God had a particular feat or, or there was something that God was uh, trying to help Samson accomplish, the scripture said that the spirit of the Lord would come upon him for that time, for that specific purpose, and once that purpose was accomplished, the Spirit of the Lord would be taken off of Samson. And so you'll read that many, many times in Samson's story. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, uh, gives him incredible strength. He's able to do what God needed him to do in that moment, and then the Spirit of the Lord is taken off of him. The difference in the New Testament um, Holy Spirit is that when we receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it never leaves. The Holy Spirit comes in dwells and remains um, with us. So that's kind of one of the big differences there between the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So again, in, in uh, Samson, uh, Judges 14, Samson is attacked by a lion. It says he kind of kills him with his bare hand and then kind of just tears him into little pieces. Later in verse 8, it says, when Samson returned to Timnah uh, for the wedding, he kind of veered off of the path to look at the carcass of the lion that he had killed and he said, he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. So he scooped some of the honey into his hand and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his mother and father, and they ate it. But Samson didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, the reason he doesn't you know, disclose this information to mom and dad is because they would have known Samson had broken one of the Nazarite vows in that he touched the dead carcass of the lion in order to retrieve the honey. So that's kind of that first incremental step away from that Nazarite vow that his parents had made on his behalf. Also in Judges 14 there in verse 10, it says, as Samson's on his way back to Timnah uh, for this wedding uh, where he kind of gets that honey, it also says that Samson's father, he's already there in Timnah, and he's making final arrangements for the marriage. Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for the elite young men. Now, Timnah in those days was very, very well known. It had this incredible reputation for these great, great vineyards, for these very fine, exotic wines. And again, this is forbidden as part of the Nazarite vow. So biblical scholars believe that in, you know, Samson throwing kind of this bachelor party uh, for these uh, young men, that alcohol was, was served, it was probably consumed even by Samson. So again, there's kind of just this incremental, kind of this step-by-step, -step, gradual kind of coming away from that Nazarite Nazarite vow that was made on behalf of Samson um, by his parents. And so he's kind of broken two of the three Nazarite vows. And that's why I think when he finally gets to the, this situation with uh, Delilah, and, you know, she kind of wears him down and then convinces him, you know, man, you got to share with me the secret of your strength. You remember she tried that a couple of times, and he kind of just sent her off on wild goose chases, and he'd say, okay, well, the secret of my strength is, you know, you, you got to kind of bind me with new ropes that have never been used. And so she thinks, oh, okay, so she does that, and then, you know, uh, she kind of says, Samson, you know, the, the um, men are coming upon you, and then the Spirit of the Lord would come up, and he would break the things off, and then she would get all upset because she realized she had been lied to, and so she kind of just keeps on kind of just wearing him down, and she's whining and crying, and you don't love me uh, kind of thing, and so finally, uh, he does share with her uh, the secret, and there in verse uh, 17 of Judges 16, it says, finally, you just have to be in war down by her, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed. 
For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become weak as anyone else. Now, again, he doesn't even mention the other two aspects of that Nazarite vow because he knows, hey, I've already broken them. Now, theologians kind of say this is really kind of a classic example of the Christian doctrine of separation, and the biblical doctrine of separation, and you'll understand this as I get a little bit more into it, is they're, they're kinda, it kind of consists of a positive aspect and a negative aspect. The positive aspect of separation in Samson's life was at the time of his birth. His parents had kind of separated him unto God for the purposes of God. So they kind of just said, Samson, we're taking you, and we are setting you aside. We're dedicating you uh, for the purposes, the plans of God to be this deliverer who's going to begin to deliver Israel from the Palestinians. That was the positive aspect of separation. He's being separated unto something good. There was also this separation that Samson is being separated from negative things. He's being separated from um, bad things. You know, the consumption of alcohol, the touching of, of dead things. All of these were examples of unclean, undesirable things. So Samson's being set apart uh, for God. He's also being set apart from um, things that would be detrimental or negative to uh, his life. The same is really true for you and I uh, when it comes to the biblical doctrine of separation. Biblical separation, again, it's a twofold uh, uh, aspect. We're separated from something, and at the same time, we're also separated unto something. In Colossians 1.13, for example, it says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. When you become a Christian, one of the things that happens is God separates you from the kingdom of darkness. And at the same time, the scripture says, and transferred us, or, or some translations will say, and, and separated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So in this scripture, God is separating you from something negative, the kingdom of darkness, but at the same time, he's separating you unto something uh, good, which is the kingdom of his dear son. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, uh, there it says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's the negative aspect. God is setting us apart from those things that would be unclean, um, unhelpful, un, uh, you know, healthy, uh, however you want to look at that. He says, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the positive thing. So you're being set apart from the unclean thing. At the same time, you're being set uh, apart unto um, the power, the presence um, of God. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, how you have turned away from idols. So you've been separated from idols in order to be separated unto uh, serving the true and living God. That is the positive. That is the, that's the, the meaning of that biblical doctrine uh, separation. That is the twofold aspect of that. It involves both a positive and a negative. We have been separated from something negative and at the same time separated unto to something positive. And so Samson's life is kind of just this classic example of biblical separation. Samson was separated from unclean things like alcohol, from touching dead things, and then was separated unto God to be used as a deliverer for Israel. So Again, a lot of times we, we kind of see this even in, in baptism. Um, you know, I, when I meet with parents, you know, I, I always make sure that they understand what you're doing in baptizing this infant. This infant has no clue what's happening. They, they don't know what we're doing. It doesn't mean anything to them. This is really about you making a vow on behalf of your child that you're committed to raising them in the Christian faith, that you're going to be teaching them the scriptures, that you're going to be making sure that they're uh, attending church 
church, you're gonna be praying for them. You're gonna be encouraging them in the ways of God. This is really more about your commitment to them than it has anything to do with their, their commitment, this baby's commitment um, to God. And, and so oftentimes, parents, kind of like Samson's, when parents, when they made that Nazarite vow, they were making a vow on behalf of their child. This is how we're gonna raise him. And so there kind of comes a point in, in baptism where I will say to the parents, there's gonna come a day or a time you know, where that child is gonna have to make a decision for themselves. You know, Here's what you believe about God. What do they believe about God? Here's what you know, I understand about God. Here's my response. Here's my mom and dad's response to God. Now the question is, what is my response to God? And so I, I just say this because I think there kind of comes a point to where Samson's kind of just beginning to just incrementally kind of just step away from that vow, that commitment that his, his parents had made. Uh, he understood, they taught him what it meant to be a Nazarite, what that vow consisted of, and so he's kind of making these decisions that, that I'm, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna kind of live this way. I know what this says, but I'm really wanting to live my life this way. And so you really begin to see in Judges 14, there's kind of just this incremental, there's kind of just this gradual moving away from this Nazarite vow, Sansa's kind of beginning to separate himself uh, away from God, and you see he's kind of just moving more and more into the things of the world. So verse 1 of Judges 14 says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. Now, again, Timnah was in the area of the Philistines. Um, these people, I mean, they're very, very ungodly. They're immoral. They're wicked uh, people. They're unjust. Uh, and, and these were really uh, the one group of people God repeatedly and, and sternly cautioned the nation of Israel. You got to watch out for these people. I mean, they're ungodly. They are immoral. They worship pagan gods. So God said to them, man, don't, don't adapt to their ways. Don't adapt to their culture. Don't adapt to their lifestyle. Don't adapt to their, uh, to their morals. So again, the scripture says, Samson, he goes down to Timnah. Not so much geographically as much as almost spiritually, Samson's kind of just moving more and more in the ways and the direction uh, of those ungodly people. And it says in Timnah that this woman just caught his eye. And again, this is like, you know, a, a case of lust at first sight. I mean, he's driven more by his glands, less by his convictions at this point. He is just kind of overcome uh, and in overdrive by his passions. He just sees this pagan girl, and, and he just immediately just goes with this carnal desire. Now, again, Samson's mom and dad tried to intervene, but really uh, to no avail. He doesn't listen. And, and, and so you see kind of in Judges 14, Samson Samson kind of just begins to take these incremental um, steps uh, that would ultimately lead to his demise. And therein really kind of lies the deception of sin. You know, it's never usually just one sin that does us in. Isn't that true? It's usually kind of, you know, a, a series of sins or a series of kind of just those small incremental steps. So, you know, you kind of say, I mean, you know, if it's, you know, committing adultery. I mean, you don't go from a happy, healthy marriage one day into adultery the next. Usually that kind of thing just comes incrementally. There are just very, very little steps and you kind of feel like, well, this isn't such a big deal. You know, and you kind of get comfortable with that. Then you kind of just take the next step. Well, that, that's not such a big deal. And, and what it is is just bit by bit by bit, compromise, little compromise, little compromise, until finally you're in to full-blown sin and rebellion. So, again, sin doesn't, you know, come in just one big major step. It usually kind of comprises of just very little, teeny, tiny, incremental Steps And again, what started with one woman in Timnah ultimately led to Delilah in Judges 16. And we all know that that resulted in Samson losing his strength, his eyesight, his freedom. And in the end, it cost him his life. Jesse Duplantis once wrote, he said, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. 
and charge you more than you want to pay. Sin won't ask for too much in the beginning, but in the end, it'll steal everything you've got. This was very, very true in Samson's case. Samson's parents, they tried repeatedly to warn him, you know, do not marry a woman from the um, Philistines. I mean, Samson, there are so many beautiful, eligible women in the nation of Israel. Can't you just choose and marry one of them? Again, the Canaanite nation was well steeped in idol worship, sexual immorality, greed, materialism, just to name a few. And God did not want his people being tempted and drawn in into those kinds of practices. So he just insisted, man, I want you just to choose to remain committed and just marry within um, the nation of Israel, those people that share, uh, again, your values and your love for God. Paul says something really kind of similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? Now, I have to think that this was probably maybe the approach Samson's mother and father were trying to take with him and convincing him not to marry these women from the Philistines. What harmony can there be with Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So God is basically saying to us the equivalent of what he's saying to the nation of Israel back there in the uh, Old Testament. And you'll see as you get into the story of Samson, he just has one problem after another with all the women in his life because he just constantly unequally yoked himself with women and with people who were nothing like him. For those of you maybe here this morning, you're still single and you hope someday to get married. I, man, it is so important. It is so critical that you find someone that shares your values, your morals, your love of God, maybe your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, those of you who may be going uh, into business with someone else, or maybe you're thinking about going into business with a group of people, do not yoke yourself with people who maybe kind of think that, you know, cheating on their income taxes or, or cheating people in business deals is okay. We need to be joining with like-minded people who share our values, our morals, our commitments, our love for God in the important areas of our lives. Otherwise, you just run this risk of just kind of being pulled away, even if it's just incrementally, step by step, into compromising our faith and the things that we hold dear and precious. Many, many years ago, I've shared this story before. It's been a while, but many, many years ago, I had moved to Colorado Springs to help a friend start a moving company. We were both Christians. We were very, very dedicated uh, to our Christian faith. Things started out really, really good. We were busy. We were making a lot of money. And with all of the money we were making, it just seemed like the money was going out just as fast as it was coming in. And I just could not reconcile. I just could not understand where is all the money going. I'm looking at the books, I see what's coming in, I see on paper what's going out, I see the bank statement that it's just like, man, where, where is all of this money going? And so one day, my uh, business partner and I got together for lunch, and I, I brought the books, and I said, man, I'm trying to reconcile this. I, I don't understand what's going on here. Can, can you explain, like, where is all of this money going? And so the course of time, he kind of confessed that his uh, dad was just really a, a compulsive gambler, and he had gotten himself into some very serious and, and I would say, some very dangerous uh, loans uh, and, and schemes with a bank. He, um, I don't think you can do this anymore, but back then, there was a, a, a way that you could kite checks um, and, and he was kiting checks all over Colorado Springs, and, and uh, he, they explained to me how that they were doing it, and, and it was so confusing. I didn't even know how he kept all of it straight because he was working with so many different banks, writing a check to this bank, uh, and then writing a check to the, and, and so they called it kiting checks, and, and then he had some uh, loans from some not so very nice people, 
And so he had gotten into a lot of trouble with gambling and his debt. And so uh, his son was, was giving him a lot of money to kind of bail uh, him out of his gambling troubles and his debt woes. And so he, he said to me, but you know what? He said, I, I told my dad no more. Uh, this is it. I'm not going to help you anymore. Well, as time went on, he continued uh, helping uh, his dad continued to bail him out, and even though he kept reassuring me, the last time was the last time, and, and this went on for about a year, and I'd been working like seven days a week and, and trying to make a go of this, and I just kind of felt like I was just, my wheels were just spinning. I wasn't getting anywhere, and, and so I kind of just came to that, that point one day where I just realized I'm at a fork in the road, and I've got to make a decision here. And that is, I completely break away from this and just pursue another path, or I just need to go down this path knowing that we are going to continue to make the money to bail this guy out of his debts. And if I choose to go down this road, I just need to go down it with my mouth shut. And I just decided that my time, my work was much more valuable to me than that. And I just simply chose at this point, I just need to break off my uh, relationship both personally uh, and business-wise with this friend of mine. And so one day, uh, I just, you know, went to my car and I just kind of packed in the most important things first. And when I ran out of room, there's no more room to put anything in the car, um, no trailer. I had tons of furniture. I, I mean, I had pretty much everything I needed. When that car was filled, I got in it and went back, uh, came back to Iowa, and uh, that was it. I, I never had any more to do with that. I just completely uh, walked away from that. Uh, I think I talked to my, my friend, my business partner, one time after that. Um, regarding some tax issues, and unfortunately, we never, ever spoke again. My, uh, the part of that that I said to him was, was that, you know, if you honestly, truly desire to do this uh, in the right way, you know, call me, I'll come back. Um, but do not call me if we're going to continue to use uh, all of our hard work to bail him out. And I never, ever heard from him except that one time uh, regarding some tax issues. And, and I learned a lot of lessons um, in that. And one of the lessons I learned in that was be very, very careful who you make alliances with. You know, again, we, we just need to be careful, folks. We're living in a culture right now where, where the, the temptation to mix light with darkness is just becoming easier and more prevalent than ever. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to make you feel, feel guilty. I'm saying it more just as a reflection even in my own life. I mean, how many times do you just sit down and you watch a movie and that movie's just, you know, filled with profanity. There's nudity. I mean, there's murder. I mean, there's just a lot of violence in there. And you kind of just sit there and you almost kind of just justify it. You know deep inside you shouldn't be watching that. You shouldn't be listening to this kind of thing. But you're kind of just sitting there hoping that maybe this movie is just going to get better, that somehow it's just going to elevate itself to a G or a PG rating. And so oftentimes we sit there and we're kind of just mixing light with darkness. Again, in the, in the movies we watch, maybe we do that in the kinds of music that we're listening to. Maybe we do that with the kind of books, uh, again, that we're reading. There came a time in Samson's life I don't know exactly when it was, but there kind of comes a moment, there's a threshold where he kind of just had mixed the light with the darkness long enough that, that he really ends up discovering what I think is one of the saddest scripture verses in the entire Bible, Judges 16:20, following Delilah shaving his head. It says, Samson didn't realize the Lord had left him. Delilah shaves his head. She calls for the guards to come in and to subdue him. He jumps up just thinking, the spirit of the Lord is going to come upon me like it always has, and I'm going to conquer them. And he kind of gets up, and there's no strength to fight with. And it says he didn't even realize at that point the Lord had left him. 
Again, that is the saddest outcome when we as believers try to coexist with unbelievers. We can become so ingrained in their way of life. And again, it just comes incrementally. It's just step by step. And we become so ingrained in their way of life, their mindset, their thinking, their lifestyles, that we don't even recognize that God's presence is no longer with us the way it once was. So again, how is it, given Samson's story, that he ends up being referred to as this great example of faith there in Hebrews 11? Well, after Delilah deceives Samson, he's taken captive. The Bible says they gouged out his eyes. He's taken to Gaza where he's bound with chains, and he's forced to grind grain in the prison. Judges 16.22 makes a very interesting observation, and it says, but before long, Samson's hair began to grow back. The one thing Samson attributed to his great strength is now returning. Verse 23 continues, the Philistine rulers had a great festival offering sacrifices and praising their God, Dagon. They said, our God has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, bring out Samson so he can amuse and entertain us. So Samson was brought from the prison to amuse them, and they had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, place my hands against the pillars that uphold the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there. And there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. I would suspect Delilah was among them. I don't know that, but I'm just assuming she was. Then, this is so key. Samson, even though he is so incrementally just moved away from God, stops and he just turns back God's direction and he simply says, then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two pillars that held up the, up the temple, pushing against them with both his hands. He prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. And Samson killed more people when he died than he had killed during his entire lifetime. Samson remembers the promise of God that he had given to his parents. God said to Samson's mom and dad, your son will begin the deliverance. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. That was the promise that God had given to Samson through his mom and dad. And Samson remembers that promise, that word from God, and he says, remember me. Remember your word. Remember your promise to me. What Samson began, David would continue. So Samson knew God's promise that he would begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. So standing there, blind, chained, and mocked, he basically just repents. He turns back God's direction. And he says, God, I've not been faithful to you, but God, you are faithful. So God, will you be faithful to me and be faithful to your promise to me? And God does. And Samson learned what 1 John 1, 1 John 1, 9 teaches. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Again, the beauty of that is, is no matter how far we have fallen away from God, no matter how far we have fallen into sin, if we just look and turn in God's direction, ask God, God, I repent, I turn to you. God, would you remember me? God, would you remember your promises to me? God, would you be faithful to me despite the fact I have not been faithful to you or to your promises, but God, will you be faithful to me and faithful to your promises to me? that God is always there, ready and waiting to restore, to forgive, and to redeem us. As we close, I want to just take this opportunity to ask you, are there any things in your lives this morning that maybe you need to be separated from in order to be separated unto? 
the things of God? Are there maybe areas of sin? Is there maybe areas of disobedience or just rebellion? And again, they can be big things, and they can be the little things too. It's the little things. It's the incremental things that maybe there's just some things this morning that you just need to say, God, God, I need you to bring me out of this so that you can put me into this. God, I need you to bring me out of this area of rebellion, and God, separate me unto an area of obedience. God, would you bring me out of this place, separate me out of this disbelief, and and God, separate me unto a place where I can believe that you exist. You are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And so maybe there just are some things this morning. It could be, again, as I talked about, just movies, or maybe you're in alliances, or you're in harmony or unity. Um, There's this light with darkness this morning, and God just wants to separate you from that. He wants to bring you out of that darkness so that he can bring you into his glorious light. And so, again, maybe there's just an area this morning that God just wants to separate you from. Following his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband, Uriah, David just writes this incredible, awesome prayer of repentance. It is oftentimes a scripture, it is a chapter in Psalms that I will just constantly point people back to because oftentimes people will come to me just in a place of brokenness. And they're just like, I, I just don't know what to say to God. I, I, don't know, I don't know how to pray to God in this situation. I say, man, Psalm 51, it is a beautiful, awesome Um, guide uh, to restoration, to repentance, to forgiveness. And and so David found this after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, after he kind of plotted the murder of her husband, he writes this incredible song, Be Gracious to Me, O God, According to Your Loving Kindness. You know what? That is not difficult for God to be gracious, to be loving. It is not difficult for God at all. God loves to be gracious. God loves to bestow his loving kindness upon us. All we have to do is just ask God, be gracious to me. God, I have been so ungracious. I have been so unkind. But God, you are not like that. And God, I appeal to your graciousness. I appeal to your loving kindness according to the greatness of your compassion. God, I have been so uncompassionate. But God, because of the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I love this. God, you desire truth in the innermost being. That is the deepest part of your being. And God desires truth to be in that innermost place. He said, in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. How many of you here this morning, maybe you're struggling with depression. Maybe you're kind of struggling with with oppression. Maybe there's, there's just doubt and, and, and fear. Maybe your prayer this morning is, God, would you make me to hear joy and gladness? Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. And I love this part. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, give me a steadfastness to be obedient to you. Give me a steadfastness to pursue after you. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. God, that I would be willing to never give up. Amen? Let's stand this morning. I would just invite you, if there really are some areas that that God is really kind of speaking and working uh, in your heart this morning, take this Psalm 51 and just make it your own prayer. Maybe as you kind of get alone with God, you kind of get more specific as to the issues or the areas you feel like God's kind of dealing with you this morning. And you just make this really personal. 
And just let this kind of be your heart cry to God for restoration this morning. So, Father, I just pray by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit that you see every heart. Every heart is laid bare here before you. And, God, you see all of us here this morning that, God, we are this mixture of light and darkness. That, God, we, we, are, we are people, God, who have compromised our faith that, God, we're people who have kind of maybe dabbled in areas of sin or rebellion. And, God, some in, in lesser areas, some in greater areas. And yet, God, we are kind of this mix of light and darkness. And, God, part of what you're pursuing with us is, God, you're wanting to bring us out of that darkness and more and more into your glorious light. That, God, you're wanting to take us out of those areas of rebellion and disobedience. And, God, you're wanting to bring us into a sense of greater obedience, God, where you're trying to take us uh, and, God, to, to conform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, every one of us in this room this morning, to varying degrees, we are a mixture of that light and that darkness. So God, I just ask, Lord, that you again would just shine your light in those areas maybe of darkness, of compromise. Maybe, God, where we've kind of just been incrementally moving away from you. And God, I just pray, Lord, that you would just begin to reveal those areas, begin to, to, to call us back to begin to bring us more and more into that light, that glorious light, that light that sets us free, that light that restores our hope, our joy, our salvation. And so, Father, this morning, I just pray, Lord, whatever those areas may be, the Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that you desire to be gracious, that, God, you desire to bestow your compassion, that, God, this is, you're not angry, God, you're not out for revenge. And, Father, I pray that if anybody's feeling guilt or shame or condemnation right now, Father, we rebuke that. We see that as a work of the enemy. And this morning, Father, we just come because you desire truth in our innermost being. And God, you desire to overwhelm us with your loving kindness this morning. That God, that would cause our hearts to just soften, to turn and to be open to you this morning. So Father, I just pray whatever those areas of darkness are, that God, you would just begin to just pull us, separate us from that. And God, at the same time, just begin to separate us unto your blessings, your hope, your goodness, your love, your mercy for us. And Father, we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.